Hi, I'm Evacheska DeAngelis, and I am here to welcome you to our internet radio broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Mind, Body, Health, and Politics brings you wide-ranging, uncensored conversations containing up-to-date information with prominent, nationally acclaimed authorities, scientists, and best-selling authors. We feature a wide variety of topics ranging from psychedelic science, expanding consciousness, mental and physical health, human sexuality, the environment, social justice, and much more. This program has been hosted by my father, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, for 20 years, and we continue to broadcast because you listen. So please give us your support by subscribing free of charge at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and joining our growing community. And now, here's my dad and today's guest. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that community is the most effective and healthiest way for us to live. I also believe that basically we humans are friendly, tribal animals, and we like to do things together. We like to cooperate and collaborate. We like to hang out together, from sewing circles to poker games to conferences to watching football games you name it. We like doing things together. We love eating together. We love getting together with other people, family and friends, and sitting around and eating and chatting. And while all this good stuff is going on, and it's very real, we must also always be aware of the fact that there is a very small percentage of us who are very different. These people are predators. They are dominators. These are the people, when we came out of the caves, had the biggest club, and they used the club to rule the caves. And when we got bigger, they ruled the villages, and then the towns, and then the cities, and eventually the countries, so that many countries had warlords that led them, or what eventually they had were kings. And kings had people who were subjects. That means you were subject to the king's will. That means the king could wave a hand and have your head chopped off, which, was, which happened a great deal. And then along in history, the kings made a great deal with the church, and they combined their efforts. And then the kings ruled by what was called divine right. And what that meant was that the kings were in their jobs because they were appointed by God, so that if you went against the king, you went against God, the worst possible thing, and people remained subjects. Then eventually the Greeks and the Romans experimented with republics. A republic is where everyone is equal before the law, and they had that for a while. Eventually it failed in Greece, and then when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, he changed the Republic of Rome to an empire, and there were kings ruling this planet until our revolution, the American Revolution, and we overthrew a king named George, and we overthrew the church in the sense of we went against the church. And what we created were citizens, everyone equal, citizens in a republic, everyone equal before the law, citizens in a democracy, everyone has one vote. And we've been experimenting with this now for over 200 years. But folks, please, Remember that a democracy and a republic are not permanent. They're something that we have to take care of, like a garden, and we have to be aware of all the time, because those folks who came out of the caves with clubs still exist. They existed with the pharaohs in Egypt. They existed with Genghis Khan. You can go forward in history, whether it's Napoleon, jump forward to Hitler, Mussolini, Nowadays, Bolsonaro, Trump, Putin, these are all people who would rule us as subjects rather than have us be citizens. I know these are very hard times, fellow Americans. I know that 70% of us are struggling right now to put food on the table and we're living paycheck to paycheck. But even in these hard times, we must vote. We must remember to take care of our democracy and our republic. 
In the words of one of my great heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the great pleasure of having with us Dr. Michael Midhoffer. He's someone I've known for many years, someone I've looked up to and respected for his great research. He's a psychiatrist, and he's the principal investigator for the MAPS MDMA study, which is making history in the United States and on the planet. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Michael. Thank you, Richard. It's really great to see you again and have a chance to talk. I, I just want to clarify, I'm not the principal investigator for all the MAP studies. The more recent ones, I've been playing more of a support role, but I have been principal investigator on a number of them. So thanks. Now, I, I really liked what you said. You know, it, a couple of things about what you said seem to apply to psychedelic therapy, um, which is what I'm most interested in in my work life. And one is, as Bessel van der Kolk says, healing happens in community. So, you know, the, in my mind, the kind of process people are having using these kinds of medicines therapeutically are so much bigger than some, you know, just a treatment for a disorder. And so much of it involves the relationship with the people around them. And that, so the community is so important. And also, even though we don't exactly have a king anymore. It was the reason we're not many decades further ahead in this research is because Richard Nixon decided that it wasn't okay that, and made these, these medicines illegal, basically. So there's a parallel there, too. Yes. I mean, the good news was, is that he got thrown out of office. The bad news is he did a great deal of damage. And, and when he declared the war on people that he called the war on drugs and it got cemented in as a war on drugs rather than what it was, a war on people, namely people of color and, and what were called hippies, it, it really did set us back, didn't it? Yeah. When you uh, mentioned uh, community and psychedelics, do you see the Renaissance and psychedelics having a cultural effect, a positive cultural effect, both here and around the world? I, I think so. I think it's having a mixed effect in many ways. It's um, because, it, as as you well know, there's thousands of years of history of humans learning how to use these kinds of substances in a meaningful way for healing and spirituality and community life. So I guess, in a way, the Renaissance is, in our modern culture, getting back to that in some ways. So I think there. Well, we saw what happened in the in the sixties. I, I think there was a lot of community and a lot of cultural change, and then there was the backlash, of course. So now I think it's a pretty interesting time because we see, you know, we're probably getting close to having some of these drugs approved as medicines, um, which I think is real progress. At the same time, there's this challenge. Okay, we're bringing it into the med bringing these. We're working on bringing these medicines into the medical system, which in itself has many, many problems. So I think in one way it's it's building community, and many more people are realizing the potential value of taking these medicines seriously. On the other hand, there are market forces and you know established systems that. I think already are showing signs of trying to kind of move, you know, contain, contain it all within the existing system and somehow squeeze it into the way we're trying to deliver care to people now, which has many problems. So I think it's, in a way, it's, um, there are several forces moving forward and it's going to be a challenging time to, in my opinion, to, you know, make good use of, of, the way these can be used in psychiatry and psychology, perhaps, but but not lose uh, the heart, not have it sort of subsumed by this kind of impersonal system that is really lacking in community in, in a lot of the time, I think. These two forces you're talking about sort of remind me of my theory about the two forces that are working against one another or competing against one another on the planet. And I categorize them as being, on the one hand, the social Darwinists, and the other hand, the social humanists. For me, the social Darwinists 
are part of that group that I described that came out of the caves with the biggest club. They believe that in survival of the fittest in an economic and power way, and they believe that those who have the most power are meant to rule and all the rest are meant to listen. And it's winner take all, and they don't care literally if people starve or don't have enough water because they say it's sort of Darwinian, if you will. And the social humanists, and I think you and I belong to that group, believe that there's enough on this planet for all of us, and there's enough to feed, shelter, and give health care and, 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 uh, and education to everyone. And they're two very competing ideologies, and I think that's what you're referring to with regard to psychedelics, aren't you? I think so, Richard. Yeah, it's a real parallel. And so um, there's kind of coming to a head in many different areas in politics and and in the psychedelic research world. So you've been working now for decades on MDMA research primarily, uh, correct? Yes. Yeah. And so I'd like to have a discussion with you now and for you to tell us all things MDMA. Tell us the good the bad and the ugly. And I say the bad and the ugly because I'm working on a book, I think you may know about it, about um, unwanted complications of medicine, sometimes called adverse effects. Uh, I will never use the word side effects, by the way, because for me, side effects are words that the pharmaceutical companies came up with to sanitize and minimize adverse effects as if it happens on your side, so it's nothing you have to be concerned about, rather than what we know, it happens to the entire system. So please, uh, and the reason I'm, I'm focusing on the unwanted complications for a piece of my history is that I want us in the psychedelic science world to be transparent and tell everybody everything so that we're on the other side of the coin of the pharmaceuticals who try to hide things. And let us tell everything so that if there are, which I hope you'll be able to tell us about, unwanted complications or adverse effects, we can simply be prepared for them. We know what to do. We know what happens when they come. And also people can make their own decisions about whether they want to take them or not based on the percentage of the possibility of something happening that they don't like. I think that's a very important point, Richard, and that, you know, maps and uh, Maps Fully Benefit Corporation have, I think, been very good about that. Rick Doblin, from the very beginning, when he formed Maps and nonprofit, you know, he funded um, toxicity research uh, at Johns Hopkins, and you know, he wanted to put equal effort into exploring possible benefits and put equal effort into exploring possible adverse effects, and it's. Um, it's interesting that you're making that point about not calling them side effects, especially since um, right now, you know, I'm, I have to be careful what I say about MDMA in order to not to get ahead of ourselves with the research, because in the FDA process, as MAPS Public Benefit is getting close to submitting a new drug application, um, we're, we're actually um, constrained from calling them side effects for the, the FDA wants to make that point that you know, we, we have to stand up to the fact that they're adverse events. So um, I'm not going to, you know, I have to be careful because, you know, in this FDA drug development process, in the mind of the FDA, we can't say what the risks or benefits are yet because we don't fully know because they haven't, we've done all the, you know, the phase two and phase three trials successfully, but they haven't analyzed you know, we haven't submitted it all and they haven't analyzed to decide here are the benefits and here are the side effects. So I want to give that caveat and I am always encouraged to remind everyone MDMA has not been approved by FDA or any other regulatory agency. So um, having said that, um, I think it's a really important point that, um, you know, for one thing, MDMA has been called ecstasy um, and um I, my understanding is that was really a marketing term, a marketing name that was effective for marketing back when it wasn't, you know, when it was still legal and it's continued that way. So, you know, one of the striking things we hear from people is that a number of people in the studies have said, I don't know why they call this ecstasy. So it's not, you know, some people come into to it thinking it's just about 
the MDMA will make you feel better and that's the way it works. Um, and one of the important points that we emphasize from the beginning is, you know, this is not, a, this approach is not designed like many pharmaceuticals to suppress symptoms. The way we understand the way we're researching MDMA is that I think of it as a catalyst to a, a psychological process. And it's the, it's the psychological process that um, can lead to this rich experience that many people report as being helpful and, and that we see data showing that it, it, for many people, it decreases PTSD symptoms. So um, I think that's one of the points. Maybe the, it's, it's good and bad, but um, part of the bad is, it, you know, a part of what people have to decide, as you say, they can, they, people need to choose if this does become available one part of that decision is, are you interested in a process that may be quite painful? That maybe your symptoms will get worse before they get better in the process of aiming toward getting down to the underlying cause of the symptoms rather than suppressing the symptoms. And of course, that applies to any kind of deep therapy, I think. But uh, with these compounds, it, it, it can intensify everything. So that's one of the um, cautions. And of course, um, if it's that being the case, that the experience can kind of stir things up, help people access painful emotions that they'd maybe not be able to access to process, um, that can be a risky time too. And so they need, people need support to help integrate the experience. So I'd like to, to sort of elaborate and clarify uh, on what you're saying. Um, I've been interviewing scientists at uh, UC Med, NYU, Johns Hopkins, UCLA, and they all are saying something that sounds the same or similar to what you're saying, and I want to check it out. They're all saying that this medicine, MDMA, is not a one-time panacea that you take and suddenly you're better. It's a facilitator that's to be used along with psychotherapy in order to really get the job done. Is that part of what yeah. you're saying, Michael? Yeah, that, that's how I see it too, yeah. So that's important for the public to know, and I guess not necessarily the bad, but the caveat is that the public needs to be told that this is a medicine that is to be taken as part of a psychotherapeutic experience it's not meant to be a get some at the drugstore and go home and, and take it, and then all of it, you, you're going to have great expectations that you're going to be in an ecstatic state and all your problems will be gone. That would be very misleading, wouldn't it? Misleading and potentially dangerous, I think. Okay, tell us about the danger. We want to hear about that. Yeah, well, you know, people ask us, why haven't you done a study yet where you just put somebody in a room with MDMA? You know, because what we are in the studies... The, the MAP studies, the, the model really is after careful preparation, then people either get MDMA or, or placebo, depending on the study design. Um, and um, that only occurs three times at monthly intervals. In between, there's quite a lot of therapy to help people integrate the experience. So um, the, the medicine is actually used only sporadically in this course of psychotherapy, as you're saying. So um, what we've seen is sometimes during that course, um, people are, have a lot of trouble, more anxiety comes up. Um, some, we've included a lot of people who have been suicidal in the past in our studies um, because we thought it's important to study them. And we've had some situations when um, people can begin um, as things get stirred up People can have more suicidal thinking for a while. Um, we didn't have problems with that in the latest study, but it is a pretty common thing for people to be struggling with difficult emotions and possibly even suicidal thoughts after a session. Um, and so the way we see it is whatever comes up after a session is not, not usually something that's gone wrong if you're prepared for it. It's we see it as part of the healing process or part of the therapeutic trajectory. Um, 
so, but if you didn't have that perspective and you didn't have a way to help people talk about and process what's coming up, I think they could be in danger. Tell us more about your experience with people who, after they've taken their first or second uh, MDMA experience uh, one, once a month for three months, the, I'd like to hear more about the people whose anxiety increased. Um, do we know something about what they were like before? Is, uh, is it that, you know, old stuff bubbled up? Uh, do you think the MDMA actually creates anxiety itself, or does it uncover old anxiety? That's an important question. Yeah, it is. Um, I don't have any data on, you know, what people, people's level of anxiety before and what happened temporarily in between. You know, we have quite a lot of data on before and after measures separated by, you know, several months. But, um, you know, anecdotally and from quite a lot of observation, what we notice is if, you know, for one thing, we, people in the studies are encouraged to call the therapist if they're having any difficulty at any time. So it's not uncommon for anxiety to be, to be increased for some people the, the week afterwards. And what we find is we, you know, our response to that is, well, let's meet and talk about it. And it is, I would say, again, I don't have data on this, but I would say in the vast majority of cases, once people may not realize why they're anxious, but once you start talking about it, it, it tends to link back to things that they were processing in the session. And what happens sometimes is MDMA, seem, we know that it decreases activity in the amygdala, which is the fear center. So there's a lot to be learned about this, but we what we see is that MDMA tends to, in some ways, hold the anxiety or other difficult feelings at bay enough for people to process experiences in a way instead of being overwhelmed by the anxiety. But then if we if anxiety is coming up next week, when we explore that, it's almost they're almost always able to connect it back to something they had been talking about, and it turns into a, a part of the therapeutic process. Whereas if they didn't have that perspective or that support, it might become an anti-therapeutic problematic thing. As far as anxiety, we know that MDMA can cause anxiety. I mean, it's, well, I don't know any way to completely separate those two things. Is it about something that they already were carrying or not? It's obviously impossible to completely answer. But from a practical point of view, what it looks like to me is very often people have anxiety when the medicine's coming on. And, um, you know, we know that MDMA has sympathomimetic effects. It increases, it activates the sympathetic nervous system, and that can, that can be anxiety provoking and people feel things changing. They can be afraid they're losing control. Uh, so from a practical point of view, it does appear that that tends to be mainly the direct pharmacological effect of the medicine causing anxiety for some people. And then that tends to, they tend to get past that. And then if anxiety comes up later, we don't tend to try to just reassure them the way we tend to early on. We are very curious about what, what it's about. And so it, in that case, it generally does connect it to old experiences. So I think it's a little of both, more more seemingly direct effect early on and more kind of accessing old experiences associated with anxiety later on is my impression anyway. In my own practice, not related to a person taking medicine whatsoever, what I've noticed over the years is that when people, not all people, but a significant percentage of people when their blood pressure goes up and their heart rate goes up, they have a difficult time differentiating that experience from anxiety. Yeah. And they'll often think that they're anxious because their heart rate is, their heart's beating faster and their blood pressure's up. And yeah. then, of course, once you bring the blood pressure down and the heart rate down, that goes away and there's more of a realization. But it's not classic anxiety in the sense of, of being shaken and having a feeling in the chest and the stomach of impending doom. And what I've also noticed regarding that, uh, that experience is that when people get this 
burst of, of uh, a, high, a higher blood pressure, not tachycardia, but just a, 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 enough of an increase that they notice it, and an increased uh, uh, heart rate, they'll often start looking around a kind of paranoia of what's out there causing it. Because in our culture, when something feels not good inside, instead of being taught to look inside, which is where we're having that feeling, we're taught to look around, almost like, yeah. is there a bear in the woods that's coming at me? Well, sure, when you're out in the woods and a bear is coming, that is a good time you know, to, to, to pay attention to that increased heart rate and blood pressure and get the hell out of there. But when yeah. you're sitting in your room or in a comfortable place and you start looking around. And what I'm leading up to is, have you also had occasion to, to witness some forms of paranoia as a result of these uncomfortable feelings? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would say so. I, I think, um, yeah, some, you know, the, the thing about the heart rate and blood pressure, people sometimes say it, it, it felt almost like a panic attack when I, mm -hmm. when I had sensations. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think people sometimes, you know, we've had some people sit up and say, don't let me die, don't let me die. Ah. Um, they're afraid something bad is, is happening. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I would say, yeah, that's pretty common. And, you know, some uh, often we'll make a suggestion is, you know, what if people are, just people would do sometimes open their eyes and start looking around. And, and um, you know, we've already talked to them ahead of time about that this might happen and, and ways of using diaphragmatic breathing or ways of helping to regulate themselves. Um, but we'll often say, you know, if you're willing to close your eyes instead of looking outside, it might be really helpful if you can focus inside or put eye shades on if you're comfortable. And that, that usually is actually really helpful. As you say, once they start trying to find where it is out there, it's actually easier to be with it. This is a tricky thing we're talking about, Michael, because on the one hand, we want our patients to know about the possible effects of the medicine they take. On the other hand, to the extent that we tell them we could be creating a form of hypnosis so they'll expect that these things are going to happen right. and maybe bring them on. Right. And, well, and, it, and what's even more challenging lately is now, you know, early on, people coming to the studies had no expectations or not, you know, relatively few expectations. They were just joining a research st study. Now everybody's read in the newspaper about other people's experiences ahead of time. And so we try to do it. I, I agree. It is a challenge. We try to do it in a way that's as neutral as possible. But even though that, you know, we had, there's so much variability from person to person and from time to time. And the main thing we're all encouraged, you know, we're encouraging all of us to develop is kind of beginner's mind about, are not having too much agenda or expectation about what it'll look like. But having said that, you know, here are some possible things that, that might happen. So, you know, it's a balance, but we, we try to emphasize that these are just possibilities and they might or might not have them. I guess the reason I think it's worth um, risking some expectation, expectancy effect that you don't want is I think so often for people that have never taken anything like this in the research studies anyway, um, they're so uh, apt to interpret some things as something going wrong. You know, if they, they, cause they tend coming in thinking this is supposed to make them feel better. And so I think it, it helps a lot if you want to address it in the moment with people about being curious about what's going on. If you've already explained to them you know, if this happens, it's it's not a sign that something's gone wrong. We this commonly takes this kind of course where sometimes it's more difficult. So I think that helps give you a basis for then really helping them work with it and be curious about what this is, why this is coming up, and and you know we try to disabuse people of the good trip bad trip idea. Sometimes pleasant, even ecstatic things come up. Sometimes really challenging, painful things come up. And we don't consider either of them to be bad if you approach them as what I would say, as Stan Groff would say, your inner healing intelligence is bringing for the purpose of your um, having the experience you need. Given the vast number of people that you've sat with 
who have taken these medicines. Are you at liberty to give us some rough numbers about what percentage of that, those people had a, a, a reported positive experience? Yeah, well, in the, in the most recent study, um, or the, the first phase three study um, that was a couple of years ago, it was 88% of the people um, receiving the MDMA plus the therapy had a significant benefit. And then the, the percentage who no longer met criteria for PTSD was in the 60s. I think it might have been 68%. I'm not sure off the top of my head. So the big majority of people had benefit and a significant number lost their PTSD diagnosis. And of that group, excuse me for interrupting, but of that group, significant benefit plus significant change in the PTSD was the protocol three sessions of MDMA over three months plus therapy like you described before, or was it a different protocol? No, it was, it was that protocol. Either, people got either randomized to placebo plus all the same therapy or MDMA plus all that therapy, and they had three sessions of each. We have a separate protocol later where the people that, could, that got placebo plus therapy can cross over in a different protocol and have MDMA plus therapy. Some of those people are getting treated now, but that they had to wait a long time because we couldn't do that until the whole study was yeah. finished. Oh, I bet they were chomping at the bit because those folks, as soon as they took the pills, they knew they were in the placebo group. I mean, that's just most did not everybody. Most, not everybody. Yeah, Somebody got some got the placebo effect. But, yeah. So okay, these are dramatic results. I mean, compared to anything else in the pharmacopoeia, you know that as a psychiatrist, I know it. These are dramatic results, 88% and 60-plus percent with the PTSD. Let us now talk about the other 12%. The 88% had significant benefits. What about the 12? What can you tell us about the 12% who didn't? Yeah, that's obviously a very important question that we don't have the answer to. We don't have an adequate answer to yet. I think that's, you know, we suspected early on, there would be the people with more complex PTSD, more adverse childhood experiences, more dissociative symptoms. In, in, in most treatments, those are all associated with lower treatment response, harder to treat. We, just, we now have the data from our first phase three trials showing that that was not the case. <laughs> people that had more adverse childhood experiences and, and had dissociative subtype, they did... Um, at least as well as the people without that. They actually uh, responded at about the same to the therapy alone, but then with the, when you added the MDMA to the therapy, there was even more separation. The, the people with more uh, complex PTSD indicators actually did even better. But the bottom line, it was a, is a, it, that, that blew our theory that these would be the hardest people to treat. So that's a, that's something we need to learn a lot more about. You know, the, this has all been um, funded by Matt nonprofit, and um, that's changing a little bit, but it's still um, basically like that. And um, so we've had to concentrate on what the FDA needs to make a decision about approval. And so those other questions that are so important haven't been answered yet, but we need to figure that out. Now, I would assume correct me if I'm wrong, please, that the 12% contained the people or some people who might have what we call unwanted complications or adverse effects. And can you speak to that at this point prior to what's going on with the FDA or do I have to wait? Yeah. Can I interview you again after we, think, <laughs> so we go through? Because I, I want to get to this information, but I respect the uh, protocol, yeah. of course. Thanks, Richard. I always, I'd welcome a chance to talk anytime. Um, I don't actually think we have that data about number of adverse events in the two, in the group, in the non-responders um, or the people that responded less well. That's a, that's a good question. Um, Do we have data on some of the actual experiences they report? We talked some about anxiety uh, did people end up dissociating in some way? Did you have any people who became psychotic? 
uh, numb or panic reactions, uh, things like that, that you're allowed to speak about at this time? And if you're not, please just say so, because we all understand legalities and going through government procedures, and we will respectfully wait. Yeah, thanks. Well, I I, I don't want to, I mean, it, the adverse events, the common adverse events we saw are in the paper in, in Nature Medicine, so those those are easy to read. Um, we did not have anybody become psychotic that I am aware of, and, and certainly not the studies I worked on, and I'm not aware of any in the other studies. Um, so we we did have people certainly have, have you know panic like reactions. We didn't have any. We had quite a few adverse events. We didn't have any have any severe adverse events in the MDMA group in this most recent study. Um, so. Um, and of course, these were all people that were carefully medically and psychologically screened. Uh, so um, it's a, a, a pretty select group. I think one thing that will happen if the medicine is approved, um, some of the relative contraindications, um, we're going to learn more about those. So um, that's the other part of the question is, we, we don't even know really how to predict who's going to respond in this group of people that meet all of our criteria. Um, for instance, we excluded people with uh, borderline personality disorder and in some studies with all personality disorders. So um, we're, we, we don't know as much as we would like to about how well they would respond. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's a lot more research that's going to mm-hmm. teach us about this. Michael, can you give me the, uh, the year of that uh, Nature Medicine article, please? Uh, 2021, I believe. 2021? Okay. Yeah, it's Mitchell. Jennifer Mitchell was the lead author. Okay, that's enough. That'll I can find it with just Jennifer Mitchell and that and that uh, and Nature Medicine. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, when I was talking to George Greer, I think about a week ago, uh, he told me that um, he had some uh, information that people who had had prior panic attacks prior to taking MDMA, seem to be more prone to more extended anxiety post-MDMA. Remember, his research goes way back. Yeah. Uh, uh, in fact, I, as I recall, he was able to do his research almost uh, unbothered because it was while MDMA was still totally legal in this country back in the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked to him about it a fair amount. Yeah. Um, uh yeah, I, that's an interesting observation. We don't have any data about that one way or the other. He, he also told me uh, about some interesting uh, research being done by a man named Bogenschutz. Michael Bogenschutz. Michael Bogenschutz, yeah. I'm going to follow up on that. He, evidently, he's doing electrocardiogram uh, research and finding some evidence that people with a particular wave, I think it's a QT wave, are more prone to have post MDMA anxiety. I haven't re, uh, you know contacted him yet. I'm just sort of passing on a little of what George oh. was kind enough to share with me. Interesting. I didn't know about that part. I, I know Michael, and he's he's a maps um, he he's a principal investigator at the maps site at NYU that has worked on the phase three trials. But I that's interesting. I, I didn't know about that. Yeah, that's why I had a feeling you might not, and that's why I wanted to tell you because I think you know we, we'll, we'll, we all want to share all this information, and certainly you all doing the uh, in the fields uh, research want to know about it. Um, let's see where we go from here. I mean, have we left anything out about uh, what you can share that's going to be listened to by the public and it's going to be read by the public? Uh, what we're saying here, a lot of what we're saying here, Michael. And, and that's yeah. why, you know, that's why this interview is taking place. Yeah. Well, since you just were talking about George Greer, it reminds me of something that I remember him saying to us uh, probably at least 20 years ago when we got permission for the first study. So that, that was in 2000. Um, not long after that, we went to visit George and his wife, Required, to ask them about their experience because we, of course, had read their published series. And one thing that struck me that George, that I remember George saying, he, he told me later, he doesn't remember saying it, but 
He said, there's nothing you can do with MDMA that you can't do without MDMA. You just might not get to it in this lifetime. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's an important thing to remember. You know, it's not magic, but um, it, and the, these are human experiences that MDMA doesn't create, but it helps us access them is the way I personally think about it anyway. So I think one of the challenges, one of the things I, I like to emphasize, you know, after many years of trying to convince people that this was serious research that was worth pursuing, I feel as if now I'm trying to get people to calm down a little because um, one of my concerns is that there'll be so much focus on the MDMA that people will, if there's still a lot coming up, will think they need more and more MDMA and not take enough time to integrate the experiences in between. So I think that's one of the most important messages I'd like to convey is, you know, we are getting very impressive data using this medicine. Um, there appears to be something to it. Uh, and um, there is a danger of getting attached to the MDMA and not taking time to really foster the unfolding, the full unfolding and integration of the experience. That's kind of one of my soapboxes. I think that's beautifully said. I think that's true of all medicines, isn't it? Or almost yeah. all, not all. I don't think people overdose on uh, on antibiotics, but all, all things that feel good can be seductive. And as you pointed out, uh, uh, MDMA was called on the street ecstasy because people, a certain people, a certain amount of people had a, an ecstatic experience when their hearts opened up and their defenses dropped. Um, Another uh, adverse effect that I've run into that I'll share with you is a concern of uh, particularly women um, being misled by taking MDMA into thinking that they're more in love with the person that they just met than they actually are. In other words, they, they take the medicine and, it's like, and they open up and the person in front of them, they're totally open to and gaga open. And, and Gaga too, and that isn't necessarily the beginning of a of, a, of an intimate or or deep relationship. It it or it can be it can be the beginning, but it isn't in and of itself the beginning. And so one wants to look at the relationship in the same way you're talking about integration and find out more of the, about the person rather than say based on that uh, MDMA experience, move in with them the next week. And right. people are <laughs> I think that's, I don't know if it's more women, but I think anybody can have that um, effect. And yeah, that's the other maybe most important thing to mention to people is we don't know whether therapy with psychedelics may, is, would lead to more like boundary violations and more of this kind of uh, projecting onto other people uh, than in regular therapy. It obviously happens in all kinds of therapy, but I think there's reason to believe that it might be more of a danger with these medicines. And um, I think we should assume that it is and be extra careful. Uh, many people know that we had a problem in our, one of the phase two studies with uh, uh, Richard Jensen in, in um, Vancouver having a sexual relationship with one of the participants, you know, when they were after, not during MDMA session, but when they were enrolled, that's all there's a lot of information about that on the MATCH website, but it's really important that we take this seriously because I think, as you say, the, the person taking the, the medicine can project all that onto the therapist. I think the therapist can also get inflated by that and begin to fall into it too. And next thing you know, the boundaries are inappropriately violated. So that's, that's another really important thing to think about going forward. Yes, and when you talk about therapist violations, it reminds me the shaman in South America are noted for often taking a certain amount of the medicine that they're giving to the people in the groups that come down there. And so people who have gone down there to study have brought back that protocol with them, and many of them are taking the medicine with the medicine that they're giving uh, in lower doses most of the time, but not always. And 
I question that protocol very strongly. And I think it's when therapists take the medicine, particularly MDMA, if they take some of it, it's certainly going to put them in the position of having weaker boundaries because they're going to be more vulnerable and liable to be taken. And just the way you're describing, and I think it's incumbent upon us, Michael, as, as tribal elders, to really spread the word about this phenomenon because the, the, this uh, what you might call ayahuasca tourism is going on big time, and they're yeah. bringing and they're bringing back that protocol. By the way, another part of the protocol they're bringing back that I question very strongly is taking these medicines at night rather than taking them during the day. Um, I think taking them at night is a mistake because we're more tired late at night. We're certainly our diurnal sleep rhythm changes at two or three o'clock in the morning. I don't know if that's the best time to be under the influence of psychedelic medicines rather than take it at nine or 10 in the morning or 11 and, and then have the, your regular energy level during the day to deal with the medicine. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the first point, Richard, I, I couldn't agree more about the, the taking the, the therapist taking the medicine or the sitter taking the medicine. I, I, I don't presume to judge the shamans. I, I know I've actually been down there and, and witnessed an experience where a shaman violated someone's boundaries, but that was one person. You know, so I'm not in, in a position to pass judgment on their traditions. But for, for me and for, I think, most people I know in this culture, yeah, that, I think that doesn't appeal to me whatsoever. Because um, if, you know, if I were thinking of doing that, I'd be asking myself, why, what, why do I need to, to have the medicine? What's, what in me is preventing me from being as pre fully present with this other person while they have their experience? Mm -hmm. And I find that if you, you know, sometimes I'm more present than others for sure, <laughs> but I think it's a beautiful practice to be as present as you can for this other person's experience and not have it be about, you've got to take the medicine too. That's my take. And as you say, it's, it may not be very helpful in um, really avoiding getting inflated by the whole, whole thing. At the time of day, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I don't really have what an did you, opinion. What did you do that. in your research, Michael? We, we, 10 in the morning is when people take the MDMA. Okay. So it worked. Yeah. For doing the research, I'd much rather do that. But I, I hadn't thought much about that, Richard, but I think it's interesting. But especially maybe the disruption of your diurnal cycle, which is so important. Well, what else, what else can we, can we share? Are there any uh, tidbits that come to you from your vast experience now going back decades? Oh, I have one question. Are we going to be seeing either from your research or from others, do you think we're going to be seeing some kind of questionnaires or some kind of material that could be universally used for vetting patients until such time as we know about these other patient groups that have not been researched yet? Because you said, you know, that you, you eliminated people, say, with borderline personality disorder or other personality disorders, et cetera. And you indicated that more research needs to be done on them. They shouldn't necessarily be eliminated. But for now, you know, that's, that's for the future. Uh, we, do you think that would be a wise idea that there would be some kind of forms that therapists could use to, so that they could more carefully select and, 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 cre and be create a, an even safer environment? I think that's a, that's a good idea, yeah. Well, you know, if the FDA grants approval and we expect the decision sometime middle of next year, um, if they grant approval, they're, you know, they're going to decide what the label has, what the label says. So there'll be quite a bit of information in the label about the, the conditions under which it's been studied. And then I think a good now that you mention it, maybe maybe Maps could um, publish something, yes, or put it on the website to be available. But right now, all of our protocols are available for free on the Maps website. So, and and they have all the exclusion and inclusion criteria. So that would be a that's a ready source already that people will be able to go to if it's approved. And if for people that want to start out by sticking with the same 
inclusion and exclusion criteria in the research, they're all written down there. So that'll be available to people. And then I think that I think a lot of people appropriately will start with that. And then some people, especially at research institutions, will begin looking at these other questions and see, can we include these people or the, or some of the people that we haven't included? Yeah. We're coming to the end of our time, and I, I want to focus for a few minutes on physiological complications, uh, namely cardiovascular, heart rate, blood pressure, creation of AFib. What can you share with us about MDMA and cardiovascular matters? Yeah, well, we know that MDMA quite reliably increases pulse and blood pressure. So um, it's a bit like exercise, you know, moderate exercise in that way. So that's why we screen people carefully to rule out. We did not enroll people that had known cardiovascular disease. MDMA reliably increases blood pressure and pulse. So the, the risks associated with that are similar to the risks associated with exercise. That, so if people had underlying vascular disease and they suddenly you know, went out and tried to, to run five miles, they might have a heart attack or a stroke. So it's similar to that. So that for that reason, we screen people carefully for underlying cardiovascular disease. If they have a, a hypertension, which is a risk factor for that, then we do some extra screening that they can still be admitted if it's controlled on their medicine. So um, that's the main thing about about that is about the the vascular disease. You mentioned atrial fib. Um, you know that's the sympathetic effect could increase any kind of arrhythmias. Um, so we haven't enrolled people that have um, atrial fib. Um, and I and it's theoretically possible that it could tip somebody into atrial fib. I think we hit, we didn't see that, um, but that, that could happen with any any sympathomimetic effect. So I think um, it's it, you know if it's approved, it's going to continue to be important to pay attention to that. But I, I think um, we've it, we've done you know we haven't had any um, serious adverse events like a heart attack or a stroke, but that. That's one thing to think about if it is approved. So you've never had anyone whose blood pressure went up outside the parameters that you'd set, so you had to give the medicine or something to take their uh, blood pressure down, correct? Correct. We never had to treat it. Sometimes it went quite high, but we knew you know, that people had been adequately screened, so we felt they could tolerate it just like as if, if they were exercising, and then it tended to, you know, it always came back down, so... And in all the cases in the studies, uh, no one has gone into a tachycardia? Uh, well, they, I mean, they've gone into sinus tachycardia, which is just, you know, a normal fast heart rate. Right. We haven't, we haven't had anybody um, with other serious rhythms that needed treatment. There was one, one exception. Uh, in phase two, we had someone who had had some extra heartbeats ahead of time, and they increased a lot during one of his sessions, and he was admitted to the hospital at the end of the day just for monitoring overnight. And he was discharged the next morning. They did further testing and didn't find any problem. It was just triggered by the, the sympathomimetic effect. So that could happen. In other words, he started with a bit with an AFib. And no, it, was, it wasn't AFib. It was just, it was ventricular extra beats. I see. I see. You know, I think after... If it's approved, then it'll be a matter of figuring out um, who, if somebody's had a rhythm problem, if, it, if it's been treated, um, figuring out whether it, you know it's adequately treated so they could be enrolled. Um, our, our criteria in the recent studies was people could have had a history of atrial fib if they had a successful ablation and hadn't had it for a year. Um, that was our criteria at this point. Ah, that's good to know. Thank you very much for that. Any other uh, physiological uh, conditions that you want to mention? Um, well, we... uh, I don't think anything so much in terms of um, adverse events. Um, okay. We know that, you know, MDMA does uh, increase antidiuretic hormones, so it makes it a little harder for the kidneys to get rid of water. So, um, 
there have been a couple of fatalities, not in medical or research use, but of people that were afraid of getting dehydrated, so they drank a great deal of water really quickly and ended up having brain swelling from the too much liquid fluid. So, oh, you heard about this happening out in the public somewhere? Yeah, there have been a couple of cases reported in the public some years ago of people dying from brain edema because they drank a lot of water really quickly and and the MDMA interfered with the ability to keep their um, their system and balance their sodium. Last question, but I always have another question after the last question. In your opinion, will you and Rick and MAPS be able to train what might be considered lay people, in other words, not doctoral level people, to be able to be guides when uh, the FDA approves MDMA and it's a legal medicine? We hope so. You know, we've fought hard um, to try to make the criteria for the people, the therapists or sitters, um, not to make it too restrictive because that has a lot of implications for co- you know cost and availability. Yes. So we don't know what the FDA is going to end up deciding, but at this point, the way we've been doing the research is one person has to be a licensed therapist, but they don't. They could be a master's level therapist. They don't have to be a PhD or an MD or DO or PsyD. Um, so one person has to be licensed. But right now we're keeping the criteria for the other one. They, they have to have a bachelor's degree um, and some experience in mental health work. So um, we hope again a lot of unknowns with the FDA, but we see no reason why um, that couldn't be a good way to go. Um, and of course, sometimes that person will probably be in some settings, maybe a graduate student who isn't licensed yet. But I think there's every reason to think that some other people, lay people with the right kind of training and orientation and personality, um, could be very good at supporting people. So I hope that'll be the case. Thank you. We're going to take a little break now, Michael, and I'm going to talk about the program While I'm doing that, I'd like you to think about anything you'd like to add after I come back before we conclude. Okay. So thank you all for listening to today's program. I'd like to remind you that if you go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, all of these wonderful programs are archived and they're all open source, which means you can listen to them without a fee, available to everybody, in your car, while you're walking, while you're sitting around, and... Also, if you want to hear the latest interview, 9 o'clock every Tuesday morning, we have the latest interview for you. If you go to the website and you see this little word, subscribe, push on it and it'll do something good for us. I can't tell you exactly what, but that's what I've been told. Also, I'd like you to take a look at my books, Psychedelic Wisdom, which just came out, which are interviews with great scientists like Michael Midhoffer, who's with us today. And these interviews are about their personal experiences with psychedelics over 30, 40, and 50 years. These are prominent people who have benefited from psychedelics and are, quote, outing themselves, taking the, the big step to talk about it in public. The, my other book, Psychedelic Medicine, is with scientists like Michael who are doing research around the country on various psychedelic medicines, LSD, MDMA, ayahuasca, and psilocybin. So you want to have a look at that as well. Again, just check out the website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Back to Michael. Thanks, Richard. Uh, It's great that you're making all this information available to people. Well, the thing I thought of was, um, to me, one of the really interesting questions is, if if these medicines are approved, and it looks like there's a good chance that MDMA and psilocybin could be approved in the not too distant future. If that happens, I think one of the fascinating questions is going to be um, how much the medical existing system changes the way MDMA or psilocybin are being used in research versus how much are these medicines going to change the change psychiatry and psychology. And I think if you really look at, at what we're learning from individuals taking MDMA in our research studies and in the 
so similarly with the psilocybin studies, we've got these measures to measure the PTSD symptoms, which is good. Really, it's great that their PTSD symptoms are better. But if we really pay attention to the whole experience that people are reporting, we'll notice that they're, they're trying to teach us something about the nature of human healing and the kind of support that people really need for deep therapeutic change that I think if we focus too much on what we already understand and try to fit it too much into the way we're already doing things, we're going to miss an opportunity for a real shift in a good direction in the way we're caring for each other. Well, thank you so much. That was so very beautifully said. Thanks. And thank you all, gentle listeners, for being with us today on this broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We'll be with you again next week. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hi, Eva Cheska here again. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and we encourage you to share it with others. All of our programs are archived and are open source, which means that you can listen to them anytime, anywhere, anyplace through our website, free of charge. We also invite you to check out my dad's books, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Psychedelic Substances, and Integral Psychedelic Therapy, The Non-Ordinary Art of Psycho-Spiritual Healing, co-edited. Stay tuned for a new episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics every week. And if you want advance notice of our upcoming guests, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Until next time, this is Evacheska DeAngelis wishing you good health. Oh!